Hello, I'm Dr. Robin Malaf. I'm a pediatric nephrologist with Connecticut Children's and medical director of physician relations down in Fairfield County. And I'm going to be talking today about one of my absolute favorite topics, nephrotic syndrome. Um, before we get started and really get into nephrotic syndrome, first we just have to talk a little bit about proteinuria. So not to bring you back to basic renal physiology, but if you remember back from medical school, we have the glomerular basement membrane, and then that goes into the renal tubule as well. And our glomerular basement membrane, or GBM, if you want to sound cool, um, has both a charge and a size barrier. So things that are small and negatively charged can pass through. And then some of the smaller proteins are then reabsorbed in the proximal tubule. So when we have protein in the urine, it can be either glomerular due to a problem with the glomerular membrane, or it can be tubular due to a tubular defect. And so when we're talking about nephrotic syndrome, we're talking about glomerular proteinuria, as opposed to tubular proteinuria, which can be isolated, or it can tend to be low molecular weight proteinuria that's due to a global failure of the proximal tubule. So you'll get um, Fanconi syndrome as well, where you can get amino aciduria, glucosuria, um, as well as a proximal tubular acidosis, renal tubule acidosis. When we step back for a little and think about proteinuria, usually the way that it tends to be picked up on first is um, in the general pediatrician's office or on screening with a urinary dipstick. What's important to remember is that that dipstick does test for albumin, but you can also have false positives for protein, meaning that if the urine is very concentrated, meaning with this elevated specific gravity, you can have false positives for protein. Um, and so the way to really delineate whether or not you have true proteinuria is to do a urinary spot protein to creatinine ratio, which helps you normalize the amount of protein given a uh, uh, different urine samples. And so a normal protein to creatinine ratio is less than 0.2 for the majority of the patients we see. In children two years old and less, a normal protein to creatinine ratio is about 0.5. What we consider nephrotic range proteinuria is the spot urine protein to creatinine ratio above three. Just because you have nephrotic range proteinuria though, doesn't mean you have full onset nephrotic syndrome. And so when we have nephrotic syndrome, we have to meet a number of other criteria. So the first one, like I just mentioned, is a spot urine protein to creatinine ratio above three, but then you also have to have hypoalbuminemia. So an albumin less than three, edema, and also hyperlipidemia. And I'll come back in a little bit and talk more about pathologic proteinuria versus nephrotic syndrome, but you'd have to have those criteria again to have full nephrotic syndrome. So it's albumin less than three, spot urine protein to creatinine ratio above three, edema, and then hyperlipidemia. And so when we think about nephrotic syndrome in children, we tend to break it up by age because you can have varying presentations and a varying differential diagnosis based on the age of the child. The majority of children that we'll see with nephrotic syndrome will present between the ages of one and 10 years old, with most of those being in the middle in terms and um, more school-age children. And the typical presentation that we'll often see is it can start with periorbital edema. Sometimes they get misdiagnosed with allergies or they'll even see the eye doctor first, and then they'll develop full-on um, ascites and, and edema throughout the body. Often they're picked up with a urine, uh, urine dipstick, which shows heavy proteinuria. 
and laboratory work will then also meet find the other um, criteria that I mentioned for full nephrotic syndrome, so low albumin, hyperlipidemia as well. The majority of children that we see with nephrotic syndrome in that group between age one to 10, we assume is going to be minimal change disease. The good news about minimal change disease is that that disease tends to respond very well to steroids. And in the old days, before, um, before we had really good techniques for diagnosing this, they used to actually biopsy everybody that had minimal change uh, that, sorry, had nephrotic syndrome regardless of their age group. And what they found was that the vast majority had minimal change. The vast majority of those responded to steroids. So now what we do is if you have a child that presents between the ages of one and typically 12 years old, we assume it's minimal change if screening laboratory work does not point towards another diagnosis. So in terms of the other possibilities for a differential diagnosis besides minimal change, you can have focal segmental glomerulosclerosis or FSGS, lupus, membranous nephropathy, things like MPGN, IgA nephropathy, amongst others. But by far and away, the most common thing you're going to see is minimal change in FSGS. What's important to remember about minimal change as opposed to FSGS is that minimal change almost always or inevitably presents as full-on nephrotic syndrome. So they will meet that full diagnostic criteria and the degree of proteinuria is not subtle. I've seen protein to creatinine ratios, you know, above 40. Whereas FSGS, I think of, can kind of do whatever it wants. You can have full-on nephrotic syndrome. You can have a protein to creatinine ratio that's just a little bit elevated, like 0.8, and no symptoms whatsoever. You can have gross hematuria. You can have acute kidney injury. But minimal change, I think of as like a faucet. It's either, or a light switch. It's either on or off. There's no dimmer and there's no in-between whereas FSGS can kind of do what it wants to do. So in terms of the other differential that I mentioned, things like lupus come up and then worldwide infectious causes as well, such as hepatitis B, C, and HIV. So in general, in addition to your routine labs for nephrotic syndrome, such as a renal function panel, a urinalysis with protein and creatinine, and a lipid panel, I will often, depending on the age and the risk factors for the child, also screen for other possibilities as well. So like I said, in terms of lupus, I will get an ANA and complements, and then I also will do routine screening for hep B, C, and HIV, um, and any other potential risk factors based on the history. We often will get an ultrasound just to make sure there's nothing else going on, but typically the kidneys will appear normal, or they may be echogenic, consistent with medical renal disease, and often you'll find ascites um, and sometimes pleural fusions, incidentally, as well on ultrasound as well due to the amount of um, fluid retention from the nephrotic syndrome. So if the child presents in that typical age group, you know, around school age or between one and 12 years old, and the other screening labs are negative, then we presume that they have minimal change, and then we go ahead and we start them on steroids. It's a pretty intense steroid course. What we typically do is prednisone 60 milligrams per day or two mg per kg with a max of 60 milligrams for about six weeks. And then we taper to 40 milligrams every other day um, or 1.5 milligrams per kilogram with a max dose of 40 milligrams uh, every other day for an additional six weeks. So it's about three months of steroids. And as any of you know, if you have toddlers or young kids, Three months of steroids is a lot for any parent to handle. So they do need a lot of support during this time because it is an intense regimen. 
the majority of children, the vast majority, about 85% or more, will respond to steroids. But unfortunately, about two thirds of patients will have a relapse uh, at some point in their, in their life. And so how you respond to steroids is how we then categorize the nephrotic syndrome. The most important thing in terms of prognosis is whether or not they're steroid sensitive. So if, as long as they respond to steroids overall, they should have a good prognosis. And while in general, minimal change, most kids tend to outgrow, um, and FSGS can tend to be more of a lifelong um, illness. If you have two patients and one has minimal change and one has FSGS and your FSGS responds to steroids, but your minimal change doesn't, then in that case, it's better to have FSGS. Um, if the patients tend to relapse often, and we define what's called frequent relapsing nephrotic syndrome as having four more relapses in a year, or what we call steroid-dependent nephrotic syndrome, meaning that they respond to steroids, so still good overall prognosis, but they tend to relapse as soon as you come off the steroids or tend to taper, then we tend to worry about cumulative exposure to steroids. While the duration of steroid therapy for a relapse is less, what we typically do at Connecticut Children's is either two mg per cake per day with again a max of 60 milligrams until the urine is negative for protein for about three days. And then we taper to one and a half mg per cake every other day with a max of 40 milligrams every other day for two weeks. So again, much shorter than the initial um, treatment for a first uh, new onset nephrotic syndrome. But if we're seeing that they're needing frequent courses of steroids or they can't get off the steroids, then we worry about long-term steroid toxicity, which we're all well aware of. In that case, we would then consider steroid sparing agent with the typical ones we use as mycophenolate mulfetil or Celsept, tacrolimus, uh, which is also known as Prograf, or occasionally rituximab as well. And we go over the risks benefits of each of those therapies with patients and then decide on the most appropriate course. In general, I tend to stick with Celsept or mycophenolate first. It tends to be well tolerated while there are some side effects of um, usually nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, those can be reduced with lowering the dose. And any of these do have long-term side effects in terms of lowering your immunosuppression, which puts you at risk for infection, issues, um, and with long, long-term use. And then Celsept in particular can cause a, a low white blood cell count, anemia, and it can also cause um, hepatic issues. And so we monitor those patients very closely with lab work. When, however, you compare those to long-term side effects of steroids, the Celsept tends to be a much safer um, treatment course long-term. Um, children that tend to relapse, the highest risk factors tend to be boys, um, especially below the age of three. And so I'll often warn families that have children within that demographic that they may wind up becoming a frequent relapser. But again, as long as they respond to steroids, they have a good overall prognosis. So again, in childhood, if they tend to respond to steroids and they're within that typical age group, we assume minimal change. When we get concerned is if when you don't respond to steroids, uh, either for initial course or any time within your nephrotic syndrome um, lifespan, then we worry that it's not minimal change. And that's when we would then go ahead and perform a kidney biopsy.
And so for those that aren't aware what a kidney biopsy entails, um, we have the patient stay overnight in the hospital for monitoring after the procedure. And the procedure itself, well, it's a, a very simple procedure, which in total takes maybe about five minutes. It's the hardest part that I always tell families is getting everyone that you need in the room at the same time um, and getting set up for anesthesia. But the procedure itself is about five minutes. It's not a no-risk procedure. And so we do save it for children where we really are unclear of the diagnosis or they're not responding to treatment. Potential risks of a biopsy include bleeding, uh, infection, and then creation of what's called an AV fistula, where when the needle passes through the kidney, it can inadvertently connect an artery to a vein. Often those cause no problems. Sometimes they can cause anitis for hypertension, and sometimes they can cause long-term damage to that kidney or, and or need to be surgically repaired. So while the risks of all those are relatively low compared to other procedures, it's not zero. And so we do save a biopsy within school-age children for patients that are steroid resistant. As I said before, when we think of nephrotic syndrome, we think by age. So when we have children that presents above the age of 12, still the most common cause is minimal change, but things like FSGS and other um, disorders creep up in how often you'll see them. And so even if you have the exact same symptoms as presentation as an 11-year-old, if you present that way after 12, those patients we will biopsy because the risk of FSGS and other diseases, like I said, is higher. And so we like to have a diagnosis. And so those patients would get a biopsy from the beginning. Patients that present before the age of one can actually be subcategorized to infantile nephrotic syndrome, which is children um, uh, three months and above, and then congenital nephrotic syndrome, which are in babies zero to three months. Congenital nephrotic syndrome by far and away tends to be genetic causes, about 85%, and those are often due to defects in um, genes that encode portions of the glomerular basement membrane, or the GBM, with one of the most common ones worldwide being something called Finnish-type nephrotic syndrome, because it tends to present um, more commonly in Finland. Um, and the remainder of congenital nephrotic syndrome tend to be uh, due to uh, infections, in particular the torch infections. Patients that present three months and above fall into the category of what we call infantile nephrotic syndrome, which also tends to be genetic causes. And nephrotic syndrome that presents before the age of one, we uh, would always biopsy, and it tends to be a very different uh, long-term outcome, of course, than minimal change, which patients tend to outgrow. So the next thing I'd like to talk about is, well, why do we care about nephrotic syndrome and what are the complications that we worry about the most? So if we look back historically in terms of when we had, um, we, when we did not have, sorry, uh, steroids or effective treatment for nephrotic syndrome, it actually had about a 50% mortality rate. And the way that most children died was due to infection. And infection still is one of the number one complications we see in nephrotic syndrome, in particular peritonitis due to infection of the fluid from ascites and from fluid overload. So whenever you see a patient with nephrotic syndrome that has abdominal pain or fever, particular fever with abdominal pain, then that always needs to be to the top of your differential and something that needs to be ruled out because it can be fatal if not treated appropriately. Other complications that we see from nephrotic syndrome often have to do with the amount of um, fluid retention they have. 
So they can have pleural effusions, they can have pericardial effusions, and they can have really significant infusions um, and edema within their legs and throughout their body. And so while we are waiting for their nephrotic syndrome to respond to treatment, sometimes they actually even need to be admitted for um, IV diuretic therapy, such as furosemide or Lasix. And we ask the family to often fluid and sodium restrict them to help with um, management of those complications. Other issues that will come up because of loss of antithrombin-3 and other uh, clotting factors within the urine, these patients are also at high risk for thrombosis, and it's not uncommon to see um, TVTs, and on occasion it can also um, develop pulmonary embolisms due to the uh, loss of those factors in the urine in nephrotic syndrome. And so while they often have lower extremities, notice that one leg is more swollen than the other, then we would always get an ultrasound to rule that out. And occasionally these patients will have to go on anticoagulation until their um, disease remits. Other issues that you can see, you can see hypothyroidism due to loss of thyroid binding globulin in the urine. They can have severe vitamin D deficiency, again, due to protein loss related to vitamin D in the urine as well. Um, and in the babies in particular with congenital or infantile nephrotic syndrome, they can have real significant issues in terms of growth. Um, if you think about it, they can lose about 35 grams of protein in their urine a day, which is about the equivalent of protein to a McDonald's uh, cheeseburger. And so imagine having these babies, you know, trying to gain weight when they're losing these significant amounts of protein in the urine. It's very, it's almost impossible. Um, and so actually in Finland, when they have congenital babies with ne congenital nephrotic syndrome, they actually will sometimes do a nephrectomy on these patients. Um, because it cures the nephrotic syndrome, right? You can't be nephrotic if you're aneuric. Um, and it's actually easier for them to manage a baby with end-stage renal disease on peritoneal dialysis rather than having active nephrotic syndrome due to all those complications we see from the protein loss. So it can be really dramatic. Um, other things that we see as well, like I talked about in terms of the diagnosis is hyperlipidemia. And so there is data that this does cause cause increased risks of cardiovascular disease long-term, especially when patients are on steroids as well. And so that's something that we do follow closely. As I mentioned before, going back to um, proteinuria in general versus nephrotic syndrome, one thing that I always like to point out to residents is that minimal change, while it can be tricky to deal with in childhood, they tend to outgrow and do well long-term. Um, whereas persistent pathologic proteinuria can be a sign of something else besides minimal change. Remember the light switch is on or off. And so that I actually worry about more. And so a classic example I give when teaching is if you have two children and let's say they're both eight-year-old boys and one has no symptoms, but has persistent protein to creatinine ratios, including on a first morning. So you've ruled out um, orthostatic proteinuria, but let's say their protein to creatinine ratios is persistently about 0.8. And you have another eight-year-old that comes in massively fluid overloaded. The albumin is 1.6 and their protein to creatinine ratio is you know, 40 and they meet all criteria of nephrotic syndrome. The boy that I'm most worried about long-term is actually the one that's asymptomatic. That child requires a biopsy because they have pathologic persistent proteinuria and it doesn't fit the characteristics of minimal change disease. And so I'm worried that long-term, this patient will have real deal renal disease um, and not something that they may outgrow of. So that concludes 
kind of the highlights of nephrotic syndrome. We're always happy to answer any questions or see um, any patients that you might be worried about. I tend to cover all of our Fairfield County clinics, but we also have clinics in Hartford and Farmington and Glastonbury and South Hadley. And for any questions, please feel free to email me. My email is rmatloff, M like Michael, A like Tom, L like Lion, O like Orange, FF like Friday Friday at ConnecticutChildrens.org.